Greetings and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say. My name's Adrian Goldberg. This time, Donald Trump and America's new civil war. We'll hear from CJ Werleman, who correctly predicted that Trump would refuse to accept the election result and that unrest would follow. I think what you're going to see in the United States is a diffuse civil war. I think you're going to see tit-for-tat violence in geographical locations where there's overlap between what is now becoming identifiably blue districts into identifiably red districts, and they're going to be in the exurbs and suburbs and, and rural areas. I think you're going to see um, you know, mass political violence on a scale that the United States hasn't seen since the last civil war. Trump has now become the first US president to be impeached for a second time. Meanwhile, Britain's populist leader, Boris Johnson, holds on to power, despite his government's handling of coronavirus and cronyism at the heart of government. I fear that we're sleepwalking into something. The erosion, the continued erosion of our democracy. I mean, we've got four years yet of the Johnson, of the Johnson regime. It's a lot of time for incompetence to continue. More on all that to come. First, just a reminder that the Byline Times relies on people like you to fund our bold, fearless, independent journalism. There's no oligarch bankrolling the operation, as if. No media tycoon or corporate advertisers pulling strings behind the scenes. Our funding comes from our readers and listeners. For just £36 a year, you can buy a subscription to our monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. And as well as funding the paper, your contribution supports our website, Byline TV and this podcast. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Now the assault on the Capitol in Washington, the US equivalent of the Houses of Parliament, which led to five deaths and shocked viewers around the world. It wasn't a surprise to one man, though. Byline Times global correspondent C.J. Werleman, who warned in August that Donald Trump was planning an election heist and would seek to ignore the will of the American people if he lost. So it proved, with Trump falsely claiming that postal or mail-in ballots had been rigged in favour of his rival Joe Biden. Trump has now been impeached by the lower house, the House of Representatives, for a second time and stands accused of inciting the mob who attacked the heart of government. On this vote, the ayes are 232, the nays are 197. The resolution is adopted. Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. Donald Trump now faces a trial at the Upper House, the Senate. But whatever happens next, C.J. Werleman believes he will leave a violent legacy. I asked C.J. how he knew there'd be trouble if Trump lost the election. One of the great things about Trump, you could call it a great thing or you could call it a profound weakness, is he tends to telegraph everything he intends to do in the, you know, in the near future. And he could see that Democrats had a huge ground advantage in registering the vote, particularly for mail-in voters. You know, this is a, uh, a pandemic election where I lived for, uh, for more than a decade in Southern California. You've got somebody in Los Angeles County at this current point in time dying every eight minutes. So with the, the coronavirus, Democrats tend to uh, follow the science, believe in the science. They saw very early that coronavirus wasn't something to mess with, whereas Republicans believe the nonsense which was coming from Trump and his sycophants and the right-wing media ecosystem that posited 
coronavirus to be a liberal media hoax. So the Democrats taking the, the, the virus more seriously went out, well, we're not going to stand in. We're not going to basically not stand in line shoulder to shoulder with other voters on, uh, on election day. We're going to register early and we're going to cast our ballot. We're going to do it by mail-in. Now, when Trump saw this, he panicked and immediately went out to um, demonize and stigmatize mail-in voting, which has been a part of the American electoral tradition for, for decades, demonize it as fraudulent, basically portrayed it to be a, a left-wing gambit to steal the election for him. What Trump also knew that in the key battleground states like Pennsylvania, like Georgia, like Michigan, like Arizona, that the mail-in ballots would be counted first on election day. And if he knew if he could just get close enough to his challenger, former Vice President Joe Biden, at somewhere close to uh, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the day of the election, there would be the impression that there was this red mirage because Trump had an advantage in people who were willing to stand in line and be exposed themselves to the virus. And because they counted um, in-person voting first, it would give the impression that he had these big leads. And he was hoping that he would go to bed at midnight with his massive lead, declare victory, and then wake up the next morning and say that any erosion of his lead that he went to bed with was part of a um, fraudulent effort to steal the result for him. Now, his plans were befuddled a little bit by the fact that Arizona called the election for Biden early, which prompted Trump to call into Fox News and speak to Rupert Murdoch personally, berating him for calling it because that ruined his plan to have this red mirage when he went to bed midnight. But he spoke about this for months. Democrats have been warning about it in the weeks leading up to election day, but that still did not stop tens of millions of Americans looking at their screens, looking at CNN, looking at Fox News and seeing Trump's lead whittle away as mail-in ballots were counted, believing that this was being stolen from him. And just so we're clear, numerous states have looked at the allegation that the election was stolen for Trump and state and state and state again have said that there was no widespread election fraud. It's incredible. I mean, it's incredible that tens of millions of people, or tens of millions of Republican voters, Trump voters, have seen Republican election officials in each of these contested states say there is no evidence of widespread voter fraud. They've seen the Republican governors in each of these contested states say there's no evidence of voter fraud. They've seen Trump's stacked Supreme Court reject claims that they're being voter fraud. We've seen Trump's you know, Department of Justice, his Attorney General, Bill Barr, who has absolutely stood by every one of Trump's ethical and constitutional violations during the last couple of years. They've seen him declare there's no evidence of voter fraud, but yet they believe this con man who, you know, charged the, you know, charged these people twenty thousand dollars ago with his university several years ago for this this university that didn't exist. They've seen the same guy who's told twenty five thousand lies over the course of the last four years, and then instead of believing with their own eyes what they're seeing, all of these Republican state officials and all of these uh, Republican judges in state and federal courts around the country. They choose to believe the guy that keeps lying to them time and time again. It's it's something that political scientists are, are going to study for um, for eternity, I believe. And this plays into a wider world of conspiracy that has been engineered by Trump and his supporters. Absolutely. I mean, we, we live in conspiratorial times now. Um, and Trump has leveraged something which has been percolating under the surface for a long time. And 
that is in the age of the internet, conspiracy theories reign. I mean, I I remember when, you know, I grew up and even into my uh, early 20s when the internet was only still only in its infancy and only starting to take hold. I mean, we basically only knew of a couple of conspiracy theories, and that was that the moon landing was fake, that Elvis is pumping gas at a gas station somewhere in, in Nashville, Tennessee, and that uh, we weren't quite sure who shot JFK. But today, conspiracies run wild. And if you look at 9-11, you can trace it back to 9-11 and the rise of YouTube and all of these uh, YouTube videos which came out positing that 9-11 was an inside job. And we get to the point today that mainstream media has been demonized to such a point that all of these media outlets which don't have fact checking which don't have editors and journalists who get fired for conveying mistruths or just making shit up you have a youtube channel you have a podcast you can say pretty much whatever you want to say you also have this right-wing media ecosystem where they're not journalists they're entertainers who are paid to keep an audience titillated with sensationalist rubbish this is the landscape that trump found when he launched his candidacy for presidency in, in 2015 and he just keeps feeding into this. And it doesn't matter what he says, they're going to believe it. And now we have a point with QAnon, this wacky conspiracy, which believes that Trump is keeping America safe rather from a, uh, a secret cabal of Satan-worshipping cannibals, um, if you can believe that. And you've got roughly, I, I believe the last time I looked in the polls, roughly 40% of Trump voters believe there could be a kernel of truth in this conspiracy that he's keeping the country safe from Satan worshiping, worshiping cannibals and pedophiles. Now, how can democracy keep moving forward when democracy is dependent on an informed citizenry when you have almost half of one party's voters believing in such incomprehensible garbage as that? It's, uh, it's profound. And if you now look in this last election, you had two QAnon conspiracy theorists running for the Republican Party in House races with one securing a victory. You're going to see over time in, in 2022 and in 2024, more of these QAnon types getting closer to the corridors of American power. Yeah, QAnon also involves, doesn't it, allegations of a high profile paedophile ring whose activities have been kept covered up by what Trump supporters like to call the deep state. And when Trump has been given opportunities to rebut these allegations or to talk them down, he hasn't done that. He's played on those fears. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, he, uh, Trump has enough political wiles to know not to say anything which disparages a large swathe of his political base. I mean, his political base is not only made up of QAnon conspiracy theorists, but white nationalists, white supremacists, neo-Nazis, anti-government extremists, and the like. And that's why he's very slow, if ever, to distance himself from these groups and individuals. Trump is a transactional mercantile type of president. He only uses people to the extent that, you know, well, well to the point that he has no use for them going forward in the future. And so, yeah, you, you're seeing like QAnon conspiracy theorists. He won't denounce it because he turns up at his rallies and all across the country and he see, sees these people wearing Q t-shirts and Q baseball hats. And he knows that's a, a significant slice of his, uh, of, of his political base. What is it about America that has allowed this mistrust of mainstream media and of establishment politics to flourish? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a fantastic question. And I guess it's a big, broad thesis question. But uh, if you start at Reaganomics and the hollowing out of America's middle class, social mobility is all but ended in the United States. And, you know, the American dream is, is built on the idea that anybody can become 
rich and successful, no matter what station that they were born into in life. But that now has become pure fantasy that that no longer exists. We have the smallest percentage of people moving out of the socioeconomic class that they were born into in history. You're seeing wage stagnation and you're seeing a lack of opportunity. You're seeing a hyper-capitalist system. Sheldon Wallen, Harvard Law professor, described America as a corporate totalitarian state where the corporations control everything. They control every single political leader in the United States Congress, including the president, including their state elective representatives. So corporations have total and maximum power, which has kept wages low, which has kept mobility low. And so out of this frustration, out of this grievance, you have somebody like a demagogue like Trump comes along and instead of explaining these forces, instead of, instead of explaining how globalization, you know, American low-skilled jobs are now competing with low-skilled paying workers in Bangladesh or Mexico, instead of explaining these complex arguments, they're sticking a, a simple bumper sticker slogan uh, on the problem and saying it's a Mexican that's taking your job, it's immigrants which have changed your way of life, it's Muslims. They're the reasons why you uh, can no longer go on four weeks holidays and can only afford, you know, and you have no health care. So um, Trump is, I guess, is more a symptom of America's overarching socioeconomic political problems. And uh, he's been able to seize and leverage those weaknesses and, uh, and fault lines uh, for his own advantage. You had predicted that Trump would not accept defeat, but were you nevertheless shocked by what you saw when the Capitol was stormed? Yeah, I mean, I want to preface the point I'm about to make that and say this. I'm very bad at making predictions. I mean, I have the predictive power of, um, you know, nobody you want to be envious of. But even though I, I read the tea leaves correctly on what would transpire after Trump would lose the election, I didn't really envisage the scenes that we saw on our television screen I'd be anything but truthful if I said I wasn't absolutely shocked. I mean, I, I sat on my sofa for hours watching CNN Live. I couldn't believe how easily, you know, these thousands of MAGA protesters, well, call them insurgents, call them terrorists, call them what you want, just freely walking into the center of American power, the center of American government, like they're walking into a um, strip mall, wrecking up the place threatening lawmakers with death, promising to kill Mike Pence or Nancy Pelosi as scenes of congressmen and congresswomen hiding under desk and hiding in the chambers, believing that any minute that they were going to be overrun and killed. No, I, there's no way in the world I envisaged those images that we saw on our TV. What is scary, though, and, and you know, uh, I hope for my friends and family in the United States and, and people listening to uh, this podcast is, this is only the opening salvo on what is going to be, I believe, a, um, a protracted, diffuse civil war. I mean, I, I don't believe, when I say America's on the verge of civil war, I, I don't mean it in terms of the kind of civil war we saw in the 1860s where you had demarked lines between the North and the South. This is not a, the contest for America's soul is, is not between, you know, uh, geographical directions, not between North and South or East and West. It's a contest between people in urban areas versus people who live in the far reaches, the far suburbs and rural areas. It's a contest between those who have a cosmopolitan, multicultural view of the world and those who have a very nativist view of it. And Trump has been feeding into this, these white nationalists or, or natives, nativist tropes, which have percolated on the fringe of American society for decades. 
maybe centuries. But those white nativists and white nationalist individuals and groups have moved from the fringes to the mainstream. So I think what you're going to see in the United States is a diffuse civil war. I think you're going to see tit-for-tat violence in geographical locations where there's overlap between what is now becoming identifiably blue districts into identifiably red districts, and they're going to be in the exurbs and suburbs and, and rural areas. Yeah, I think the next four, six, eight, ten years is going to be miserable. I think you're going to see um, you know, mass political violence on the scale that the United States hasn't seen since the last civil war, even if it falls short of being defined as an actual civil war. But in your view, this is the new civil war. It is. You're basically dealing with an, an insurgency. And that's what the MAGA movement is today. It is a violent right-wing insurgency. And there's no other way. That's not hyperbole. That is probably the only accurate way you can uh, describe it. You're talking about tens of millions of people who've been mass radicalized by a uh, president who hasn't absolutely convinced that there's no other alternative to keep democracy moving forward other to seize power back from the people who stole it from them. War and conflict is always politics by other means. And you look at these online channels and these online chat groups, which mobilize and organize these protests and these and the storming of the capital. I mean, these groups are more radicalized and, uh, you know, this is further radicalized them. And I guess if it's, a, if it's a guiding ideology or philosophy or a commonality which runs through all of these disparate groups which run across the MAGA spectrum, from white supremacists to white nationalists to neo-Nazis to anti-government libertarians, you'll find if there's a common guiding doctrine, it's probably, you know, the, the 1978 novel, uh, The Turner Diaries. And in that book, the author, William Pierce, said the, you know, the idea of attacking the capital is not so much to cause mass casualties, but to show to true patriots that the government's monopoly over violence is an illusion and that the government can be easily attacked. And that's why we need to see what happened on Wednesday is really an opening salvo and what's going to be a, a long and dark chapter. Byline Times Global Correspondent CJ Werleman with a chilling prediction. I'm Adrian Goldberg and you're listening to the Byline Times podcast, which, like our website and Byline TV, is funded by the generosity of our subscribers. Just £36 a year funds all of that and you get our brilliant monthly paper, The Byline Times Into the Bargain. So much for the populist in the White House. What about the one in Downing Street? Byline Times editor Hardeep Matharu recently warned that what she described as the insidious attacks on democracy in Britain are no less dangerous than Trump's inflammatory rhetoric in the United States. We'll also hear from Byline Times co-founder Peter Jukes, who has traced the links between Trump and his supporters and key figures in the Johnson government and the Brexit movement. But first, Hardeep, what kind of things have given her cause for concern? I mean, unfortunately, Adrian, there are all too many examples from the last year and the entire Boris Johnson administration, really. I mean, the unlawful proroguing of Parliament to stop Brexit scrutiny was, I think, a real significant moment. More recently, we had the government proposing changes to its Brexit withdrawal agreement with regards to Northern Ireland, which one of its ministers stood up in Parliament and admitted that it broke international law. And more generally, I think we've had the sort of drip, drip, drip erosion 
of accountability and any notion that people in positions of power and in public office have a responsibility to be transparent and be acting in the public interest as opposed to their own personal or partisan interest. And I guess the the biggest example of this was Dominic Cummings's little trip to Barnard Castle to do his eye test. I mean, I really did think that was such a seminal moment because there we were on a bank holiday. Cummings is sitting there being given a platform on national television. All the main mainstream journalists are asking him questions about this trip. And I felt like the message was, well, the good old British public just have to suck it up and believe it. I drove to Barnard Castle to test my eyes. And the fact that we were being asked to engage in this level of unreality, I thought was very telling. And of course, he's departed government now, but he didn't leave because of the evasion of lockdown rules during the first coronavirus shutdown. And then more recently with Priti Patel, we had an entire report into accusations of bullying by her. And it was found that she did break the ministerial code, and yet she's still there. And Prime Minister said, I have full faith in Pretty. Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary, is still in place, even though he presided over last year's exams algorithm scandal. You know, it's all about who's the most loyal to Johnson rather than who's actually competent to be doing their job. And looking at the rule of law and, and, and justice, you know, we've had all these threats about activist lawyers who are raising justifiable concerns about changes to asylum and immigration. We've had aspects around the government perhaps thinking about reforming judicial review. We've always got this thing about the Human Rights Act potentially being abolished and us adopting our own Bill of Rights, even though we were one of the founding members of the European Convention on Human Rights, which was which was developed after the Second World War and the Holocaust took place to safeguard against those things happening again. And on a day-to-day level, we're just being normalised, hyper-normalised, I would argue, to lies. So we watch these Downing Street briefings, and we know that the government is evade that the people on the podiums, especially the ministers, taking the questions, they're often avoiding the actual question. They dodge it. They say something else. It's contradictory. And and we all sort of just have to sit. And that's what's expected now, that we will just be lied to. Questions won't be answered. There's no accountability. There's no transparency. There's high levels of incompetence. And there's no consequences of that. And I think all of these are extremely worrying developments in a democracy, and not just any democracy, you know, the mother of parliaments, the cradle of the rule of law. This is how Britain sees itself. This is the image that it holds up and is always going on about. And yet the reality is very different. But unlike in America, as I sort of argued in my writing for Byline Times, a country which at least seems to know when it's at war with itself in Britain. It's all very insidious. It's all under the surface. And, you know, we're not really, I don't think alarm bells are really ringing. It's sort of like, well, we're not, that's not happening to us. You know, we're not America. We haven't elected Trump. People aren't storming the equivalent of the capital. You know, we're not India. We're not, we don't have Modi or Modi-like character in charge who's saying he wants to um, rebuild the parliament building in Delhi um, in, in his own image. You know, that's not us. We're not China. We're not authoritarian. We're not Brazil with Bolsonaro. But democratic values are relative. We are a democracy. And compared to what we used to be, as I said, we've had that erosion of yeah, just basic rule of law and accountability. And I think that is very serious. But I don't think people 
are that aware of it. I don't think they associate it as a threat to democracy in the, in the way that you can look to America and you can see what's going on with Trump. You can look to India and see what's ha- happening there with Hindu nationalism and Narendra Modi. I don't think people associate that with us. It, it, it can't happen to us. We're Britain. We're exceptional. It won't happen to us. And Peter, you've written about the transatlantic Trumpist alliance. What did you mean by that? Well, it's pretty well documented now, Adrian, that um, you track various figures and various uh, sources of funding. But there was, probably going back to the mid-noughties, a concerted, it's not a conspiracy, by the way, it's not conspiracy theory, it was a campaign between American right-wing Republicans, particularly interested in the UK and Brexit. And there's various figures there, people like Daniel Hannan. He was president of a thing called the Young Britons Foundation, which was funded, it looks like, by American dark money and associated with Robert Mercer, the billionaire who backed the fellow organization in the US, the Young Americans Foundation, and, of course, Cambridge Analytica and Breitbart. And one of those articles you allude to is that moment in 2013, Steve Bannon is working on Breitbart, is founding Cambridge Analytica, and he comes to the Young Britons Foundation, where all many Brexiteers you know of are all gathered for a conference. We've seen the sort of Trump Brexit connections many, many times. Nigel Farage, who's mates with Steve Bannon, Steve Bannon, Trump's campaign manager. And they extend to Johnson and Gove. You know, Bannon reportedly advised Johnson before he went for the leadership. Gove, obviously, you know, knew close to Murdoch. You see a kind of transatlantic moment here. Now, Hardy is very astute because I think another more positive sign about what's happened in America, and I, I live there, I work there, is they do have a rule of law. They are a republic. Interestingly, I thought it was fascinating that Biden, when he spoke up last Wednesday, when this horrible insurrection, this sort of, it's called a self-coup, Basically, Trump was trying to maintain his power and avoid the loss of that election. He said, we don't have kings. We have a president. We don't have a House of Lords. We have a Senate. And you have to think that America, very cleverly by the founding fathers, obviously out of the revolution against King George III, did ponder what happens if bad people get in power? What are our checks and balances? It may be imperfect, it may be very divided nation, but it seems so far the judges have withstood the pressure from Trump and that vote for Biden was certified. Now, what are the checks and balances here? I mean, this goes back, by the way, the Trump-Brexit alliance. We had provable, electoral commission provable, law-breaking by the vote leave campaign, no sanctions, you know, overspent massively, all kinds of information breaches. You know, the sanctions on that, there was a Met investigation, went nowhere. Where are the checks and balances in this sort of faded imperial monarchy? I used to believe they were there, but, you know, Boris Johnson has put his Brexit party friends in the House of Lords. Most of our agencies seem incapable. Parliament's pretty much silenced, thanks to the coronavirus. And I struggle to see how we have a way out of this. We still live in this quasi imperial constitutional monarchy. We rely on decent people being in power and obeying the norms. If they break through the norms, as Hardy points out, like Dominic Cummings, or I'd say Boris Johnson, 
what are the sanctions? We rely on their good behavior. But what, you know, there was no actual mechanism designed to protect us, as there is in the United States, if bad people get power. I completely agree with Peter in that I am very concerned as well about the lack of checks and balances in our unwritten constitution. I think on a conceptual level, what's really concerning with the Johnson regime is what Peter alludes to. It's this neo-imperial type of administration. And there's something I believe we all need to sort of understand, which is that for a significant proportion of the British public, there is an unconscious belief and I think an internalization of this very English notion of patronage and noblesse oblige. So I think that enough people still believe in, in this concept of a ruling class that are bred to lead. You know, they're the people with intelligence, with, with the ideas, with the competence to sort of chart the path ahead. And I think that is what we're seeing with Boris Johnson's government. I mean, there is just scandal after scandal, let alone all the incompetence with regards to the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, nearly 80,000 people have died in this country because of the virus. And yet, like Peter said, where is the accountability for any of this? And what I'm concerned about is we see this incompetence stacking up, but will that translate at the polls? You know, will it make people think differently? Or is the appearance of order and prosaic diction and the mention of the classics and historical references and a ruling class which sounds and looks like it knows what it's doing despite the incompetency? It fundamentally knows what it's doing. And actually, they are the people who have had the background and have grown up in a way which means that they are the people to lead us forward. I think that is much more internalized in people in this country than any of us like to, to really believe. Also, they don't know about the incompetence and the allegations of corruption or the electoral wrongdoing. And why is that? The problem is to me with the BBC capitulating cowardly, however you want to say it, you know, that we have a public broadcasting system, which is fearful and not very good, and a highly partisan press out of which Boris Johnson's columnist of The Telegraph, former editor of The Spectator, Michael Gover's columnist of The Sunday Times, and a mate of Rupert Murdoch, are the living epitomes of journalists as politicians. And there may well be this cultural cringe, as you say, and the, you know, our sort of doffing our cap to these Etonians in the British people. But it may also be our media ecosystem is without a functioning public service broadcaster is bankrupt. There's no way of getting the truth. And in America, for all this polarization, CNN constantly fact-checked Trump and said baseless assertions. You know, people don't in British media say very rarely, well, you're lying. I think the press, like Peter said, has an important role. The, the crisis in democracy is not separate from the crisis we have in, in British journalism. I fear that we're sleepwalking into something, the erosion, the continued erosion of our democracy. I mean, we've got four years yet of the Johnson, of the Johnson regime. It's a lot of time for incompetence to continue, of people to keep dying from the coronavirus. That's what makes me really sad. 
Byline Times editor Hardeep Matharu, and before that, Peter Jukes, co-founder of the Byline Times. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give us a review on whichever platform you use and spread the word, if you can, on social media. And don't forget to subscribe, if you haven't done so already, to the Byline Times. Just £36 a year funds our podcast, this podcast, Byline TV, our website and our monthly newspaper. You can get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. bylinetimes.com. My name's Adrian Goldberg. Thank you for listening. See you next time. <laughs>